Shakespeare Festival's Shakespeare Playground presents Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. At Island Shakespeare Festival, our mission is to provide accessible classical theater realized for a contemporary audience. Tales from the Vomitorium is presented with special permission from Scott Kaiser and is made possible, in part, by support from our sponsors, the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, and Whidbey Telecom. Learn more at islandshakespearefest.org. Today, David Osman reads Love's Labors One by Scott Kaiser. Following the story, David will share his response. Then, Scott and I will discuss Scott's inspiration for the story, as well as his experience with the play from which the story is derived. We hope you enjoy. Love's Labors One by Scott Kaiser Read by David Osman This is gonna be dull, blurted the little boy, slumping in the front seat of the sedan, his school bag in his lap. Mind your manners now, his father warned, sliding into the driver's seat and swinging the door shut. Adjusting the rearview mirror, the driver made eye contact with the old man sitting in the back seat. So sorry about this, sir. Uh, My wife is down sick and I've nowhere else to take him today. It's quite all right, Nate, the man told his driver. Glad to have the company. Thank you, sir, replied Nate. The gentleman in the back seat was Sir Howard Furness, an emeritus professor at Oxford, now 89 years old, author of many acclaimed books on literature. He was frail physically, but still mentally agile, articulate, and passionate. He had suffered a myocardial infarction a few years back and was forced to retire from teaching. As Nate pulled the sedan out of the school driveway, the professor raised his voice to speak to the boy. Is it your intention, young lad, to sulk all the way to Blandford? The boy sat silently, stewing. Well then, I suppose I have my answer. His father took his eyes off the road briefly to glare at his son. Uh, "'Pity, though,' said the professor. "'Pity you don't realize how fortunate you are to be on this expedition today.' "'Fortunate?' said the boy. "'Yes, indeed, fortunate,' said the professor. "'To have to ride all the way to some some naff town in Dorset,' said the boy, "'with some skeletal old codger.' "'Mind your tongue, boy,' his father scolded. Uh, "'Quite all right, Nate.' said the professor. We can't expect the boy to see through my disguise now, can we? Disguise, said the boy, craning his face around to peer at the professor. Oh, what disguise? I know that to you, young lad, I appear to be a decrepit old man, but this is just a humble disguise to fool the masses. I am, in fact, a knight. A knight? Yes, indeed, my boy, a knight. Is he really, father? Yes, son, said the driver. He's telling you the truth. He really is a knight, a KBE dubbed by Queen Elizabeth herself. And today, young lad, I am on a secret quest. A quest for what? Oh, I I mustn't tell you that. After all, you're not a fellow knight, are you? You might divulge my secrets. But I wouldn't. 
I'm so sorry, lad. I, I'd love to tell you truly. Truly I would, but uh, how can I possibly trust you? But, but I, I won't say anything, the boy insisted. Nate steered the car through the roundabout and onto the A-34. Well, I, I suppose I could dub you an honorary knight for the day. Could you? If you absolutely insist upon knowing. But I do. I, I absolutely do insist. Very well, then, said the professor, lifting his cane and tapping the boy lightly on both his shoulders. I dub thee knight for a day. <laughs> The professor mimicked a trumpet, tuck it with his lips. The boy smiled in spite of himself, and the professor smiled back. So what are we questing for, demanded the boy, the lost ark? No, no, not the lost ark of the Holy Grail, fellow knight, but something very much like it. What we are seeking is a book. A book? What kind of book? An exceedingly rare and precious book. Like a magic book? Oh, yes, a wondrously magical book. A magical book that has been lost for over four hundred years, which also makes it priceless. Well, how priceless? Let's just say that if we find this book today, it would be the literary find of the millennium. Which means what? Which means it would be worth millions of pounds. Oh, so people would kill to get their hands on it? <laughs> Absolutely. Most definitely worth killing for, <laughs> which puts us in grave danger. Bloody brilliant, said the boy. Language, said the boy's father. The book we're looking for is a copy of a long-lost play by, by William Shakespeare, a play called Love's Labours One. I've never heard of that one, said Nate. <laughs> That's because no one has ever read it or seen it. It is the missing sequel to the play Love's Labour's Lost. And you know where it is? Well, not exactly. You, you see, I got a call from a woman who thinks she's discovered a copy of the play among her, her great-grandfather's things in her attic. How do you know? How do you know this isn't just a hoax, sir? asked Nate. Well, we don't, of course, but this is a very credible tip. Why is that, sir? Because we have a record of a bookseller named Christopher Hunt selling a copy of the play back in 1603. And Blandford is where that bookseller lived. Uh, but we're not likely to find it, are we? I, I, I mean, <laughs> of course it's unlikely. It's unlikely, Nate, highly unlikely. But not impossible. Discoveries of this kind do occur. The only surviving copy of the first quarter of Titus Andronicus, for example, turned up in an attic in Sweden as late as 1904. So how long have you been questing for this book? Oh, most of my adult life, lad. Nearly mm, 70 years. You see, my boy, Shakespeare has been the love of my life. And all my life I've waited for a discovery such as this one, because a discovery of this importance, before I die, would place my name permanently in the annals of Shakespeare scholarship. Uh, well, what's an annal? An annal is also a book. 
So they'll put you in a book if you find a book? <laughs> That's weird. Yes, I suppose it is. So now, my fellow knight-in-arms, I want you to keep a close watch on the road to make sure we aren't being followed while I rest my eyes a bit. Will you do that for me? I will, my fellow knight. Uh, that's a good lad. <clears throat> the professor closed his eyes. He imagined the quarto in his mind. He would know instantly if it were real, the paper, the ink, the typesetting, the binding, the vocabulary, the meter, the characters, the plot, and a lifetime of acquired knowledge would tell him. He needed no infernal computer algorithm to tell him. He would just know. In his sleep, he could feel the fragile pages of the volume under his fingertips, see the words printed there, and imagine how the play would unfold. It is one year later, at the Palace of Navarre. Preparations are underway for a joyful reunion. Their own and all his mates have returned. The princess and her ladies have arrived from France. The lovers are reunited with plans to wed. But new complications arise. <laughs> We're here, sir. The professor awoke from his idyllic dream. Where are we, Nate? Blandford Forum, sir. We're just turning off Salisbury Road into Hunt Close. Splendid, Nate. Splendid. Nate stopped the car in front of an unassuming house with an ill-tended garden, peeling paint, and a thatched roof. He helped the professor out of the back seat. Your cane, sir? No, 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 no cane for me. I'm a knight, after all. Wouldn't be prudent to display fragility at a time such as this. No, 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 would it? He turned to the boy. Would you take my arm, fellow knight, and help me to the door? It would be an honor, sir, said the boy, acting the part. The boy took the professor's arm, and together they shuffled up the walkway to the house while Nate waited on the street. An old woman came to the door, welcoming them with a smile of someone who rarely greeted visitors, and showed them inside. Nate waited by the sedan. He stared up at the small round window just under the roof line. The attic, no doubt. Was it possible? Only a few minutes later they emerged. Take us home, Nate, take us home, said the dejected professor. It's a fake, the boy whispered to his father as he slid slowly into his seat. Nate glanced at the old man in the rearview mirror. Somehow he seemed older, more fragile than some moments ago. They returned to Oxford with stop-and-grow traffic hindering their way. Two months later, Professor Furness died of a massive heart attack. At his funeral, the young boy, the professor's fellow night for a day, sat in a seat right up in front. That was Love's Labors One, read by David Osman, recording from his home on Honeymoon Bay on Whidbey Island, with the help of his son, Preston. You may recognize David's beautiful radio voice from his days with the Firesign Theater. We are grateful and honored to officially welcome him to the ISF family with this reading. 
Here are a few thoughts David had about the story. This is David Osman, returning from the vomitorium to think a little bit about that story. Sad, don't you think so? The old man, a knight, no less, cannot attain his lifelong quest. Imagine putting all your dreams in a book that doesn't exist. But uh, all writers do exactly that. Seek the elusive book of their dreams, the one that doesn't exist yet, not until it's been written. The old man even begins to write the new play as he falls into his own dreams. For the boy, uh, a night for a day, ending the tale, sitting in the front row for the old man's funeral. What's his, um, well, as they say, what's his takeaway from this little adventure? He's touched age, experience, knowledge, and curiosity. Just enough, maybe, to change the way he will think about his own future, his own dreams to come. My high school journalism teacher, Mr. Walter House, led me carefully over three years to be editor of the Daily High School newspaper. He passed away such a short time after I graduated that I had hardly a moment to think what an influence he was, how he sent me off on my own adventures. Age, experience, knowledge, and curiosity. It helps a kid out, you know. Last thought. The manuscript of a play, however comical, tragical, or historical, is, as Hamlet was wont to say, words, words, words. A play is a momentary miracle in performance. It's ephemeral and scholar-free. Certainly, if we know anything about Shakespeare, we know about the company he kept and was a part of. The true joy of finding the elusive script would be to see it brought to life in the company of our craft. And maybe that performance could be the boy's dream. It would be nice to think so. The Goosefoot Community Fund Goosefoot works together with the South Whidbey community to create essential solutions. We address community needs, connect neighbors, grow local businesses, and preserve great places. Learn more at goosefoot.org. Thank you so much for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium. That was Love's Labors One, read by David Osman. Scott is with us today to chat about this story and the play on which it's based. Wonder which one that is. Hi, Scott. Welcome back. Hi, Alina. I love this story so much. It's so the the three generations and it's just such a beautiful uh the imagery in it is really striking. I feel like I'm in the car with them. Oh, thank you. Um I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about what inspired this particular uh, take on this play? Well, I've always been interested in this idea that there's a missing sequel to Love's Labor's Lost. Um, uh, it's been a bit of an obsession of mine uh, for quite some time, um, so much so that, uh, as you know, I wrote a play called Love's Labor's One. I actually wrote a verse play that is uh, the sequel to Love's Labor's Lost, uh, providing the play that we don't have 
Um, and I wrote it in verse. I wrote it uh, the way I think Shakespeare might have written it. I picked up four years after um, Love's Labor's Lost ends with all the same characters, and I follow through with uh, what happens to them um, after they come back together, all of the, 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 the couples. Um, so I've, I've had a strong uh, affinity for the idea of a Love's Labor's One for a long time. I, I am one that believes that this play is lost, that it did exist. Um, there is evidence that it existed. Um, it, uh, there's a couple of places where it's listed uh, that scholars have found that suggests that the play was written and has been lost. Uh, not everybody believes that, but I do. Um, there apparently is um, uh, the... This particular story is based on the idea that a bookseller um, in the town of uh, uh, Blandford in uh, Dorset uh, found uh, in 1637 uh, a recycled book cover that listed uh, some of Shakespeare's books that he had in stock, one of which was a play called Love's Labors One. So we have this list uh, of Christopher Hunt made um, that seems to suggest that it was a play. Um, there's also a mention um, in something called the um, Pilatus Tamia, and I don't think I'm pronouncing that right, but that's my best guess, um, which was written by Francis Mears. That is 1598, and there's also a mention of Love Labors One in that list. So in two places, um, there was a suggestion that there was uh, a sequel to Love's Labor's Lost and um, and that we just don't have it. And I've just been intrigued with that idea for, for quite some time. So the idea that uh, this scholar uh, has been hunting for that play uh, for his entire career uh, was the jump off point for this particular story. Um, and uh, um, that's, uh, yeah, so that's where this, but that's where, that was very much the inspiration for uh, this hunt. Um, is it is it based on any real life events? Have you gone searching or anyone you know, or have you spoken with scholars who are looking for the lost play? Well, scholars are looking all the time. And I do think there's other uh, people who have fictionalized the hunt for this play. And of course, other Shakespeare plays. And, and we know this especially because people are constantly pointing to uh, other works, apocryphal works, and saying, this was Shakespeare. You know, I mean, there's a whole raft of plays that people claim uh, were written by Shakespeare and that it was lost and now it's found and the computer proves it. Most of that, I think, is just nonsense. Um, uh, but it is also true, as the story mentions, that you know we found a Titus Andronicus um, in an attic <laughs> um, in 1904. Um, and uh, you'll remember, maybe you don't remember, but back in 86, um, someone found a poem, a rather awful poem called Shall I Die, um, which computer analysis uh, claimed was a lost Shakespeare poem that had been found. Um, I don't put a lot of stock in any of that. Honestly, I don't. Um, but, uh, yeah, people make whole careers about this, writing about it, teaching it, you know, uh, you know, earning their doctorates. Um, so yeah, me and everybody else looking for the lost Shakespeare. Sure. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Definitely. And I, you know, I don't know if we've really spoken on the podcast about, um, 
why and how it's even possible that there are lost plays or lost poems of Shakespeare and his contemporaries out in the world that yet to be discovered. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of the historical printing practices and copyright laws that that even make this a question? Um, yes, as you know, um, you know, there's a recent play by uh, Lauren Gunderson called The Book of Will, which uh, shows very clearly how hard it was to assemble the first folio, uh, because all they had in 1623, uh, Hemings and Condell, two actors in Shakespeare's company, were a collection of scraps and sides and and, and dirty quartos. And uh, so even in 1623, just a few short years after Shakespeare's death, uh, assembling uh, his plays was a, a, a very, very challenging thing to do. Um, the reason for that, of course, is that uh, plagiarism was an enormous problem. And so very, very few people had uh, the full script of anything back then because it would be stolen um, and performed elsewhere without royalty. Um, and uh, that has proved to be a real problem uh, going down through uh, hundreds of years is that we just simply haven't got the material because it was so well protected uh, during the lifetime of the playwrights that uh, now it is very hard to find complete, clean uh, copies of any play by any playwright back in the uh, around uh, the year 1600. Um, we're very lucky to have the first folio because a couple of actors within living memory assembled the folio. You have to imagine, you know, who else was out there that didn't have good friends who loved him so much that they would spend a chunk of their lives reassembling all the scraps um, <laughs> to make sure that his stuff would live on in, pros uh, in, in posterity. Um, so, yes, it, it was a real challenge. A lot of material was lost, which is, um, and a lot of material was reused. A lot of material was uh, was used as kindling, and uh, you know, I mean, um, the the stuff was not was not saved, was not preserved, was not handled well, um, and so um, what we're lucky to have what we have. Right, and all of those things, you know, lend themselves to uh, lots of curiosity and wondering and um therefore controversy that uh gets invented or maybe not invented but maybe invented about authorship and and everything and i i remember um taking a a folio class about hamlet and reading side by side comparisons between different quartos and and the first folio and just how much those texts vary it's incredible. Oh, enormously. Yeah. Enormously. The uh, the there's a um there's a book um that specifically lays out the uh, the Hamlets, the uh, Quarto One, Quarto Two, and uh, Folio One, mm -hmm. and uh, you can see the enormous differences um, in those three plays. Um, and uh, you know, many people do call them separate plays. They are separate versions, um, and movies have glued them all together. I think. There's a four-hour Kenneth Branagh where he used, quote, every word. Um, but the four-hour Kenneth Branagh film, there was never a production of every word combining uh, Quarto One, Quarto Two, and the folio. Um, so most 
most uh, directors are going to usually sit down and try to make choices. Either we're only going to do the quarto two, or only going to do the first uh, the first folio. Um, most directors sit down and try to conflate different versions based on what they like. That's a very laborious process. Any director who sits down or dramaturg that sits down to work on Hamlet has got to justify those three uh, versions. And of course, it's not just Hamlet. It's, you know, the King Lear has enormous differences. Uh, Richard II has enormous differences. Uh, Othello has, you know, I mean, there are many plays have, have, have differences. Now, this seems a little weird to us, but when you actually think about like someone like Tennessee Williams, you know, Tennessee Williams, because his work went through a process, um, you know, a touring in Boston or touring in the Haven, getting to Broadway, there are actually different endings for uh, Tennessee Williams plays. Um, and there are editions out there where you get to see the earlier ending. Um, so it's not as if it doesn't happen. Um, it, it does happen. Um, a lot of um, like dramatist play service, uh, you know, they will just often give you the one ending that the playwright ended up wanting you to give you. But scholarship shows you very clearly that that uh, in the process there were multiple endings for some plays. Um, another person we have to reconstruct is uh, Lorraine Hansberry. Um, different versions, uh, unfinished versions. Um, uh, so you know, it, some people find it weird that there are different versions of Shakespeare plays, but but it actually there are modern. Uh, parallels that are uh, that show that it actually isn't all that odd. I think that's a really wonderful point. Thank you so much for for sharing that. Um, let's talk a little bit about the play "Love's Labor's Lost" and uh, why it lends itself to a sequel. Well, it it is it's a comedy, and uh, as a, as a comedies go, everyone's supposed to get married at the end, um, and and live happily ever after. That is not the way this comedy ends. Um, the, the men spend a great deal of time trying to woo these women, despite the fact that they've made a vow, uh, not to be in contact with women and, uh, justifying the breaking of their oath. And, uh, they make absolute fools of themselves behaving like complete, uh, uh, you know, Neanderthals, uh, <laughs> uh with the women. And then at the end, uh, uh, they're called back to France and, uh, the man in the last possible minute said, Hey, will you marry us? And rightly so, the women are like, I don't think so. <laughs> um, you're going to have to redeem yourself for your bad behavior, and uh, we'll we'll come back in a year and we'll we'll see how you do. And they're all given specific things that they need to do to prove um, that they are good. Um, uh, marriageable men. They're all given specific tasks to perform. And then the play ends. So uh, for anybody who, uh, you know, knows Shakespeare, it, it's, it's a very uh, anomalous ending for a comedy. And the audience sits there yearning for the sequel. Um, and of course, Shakespeare wrote many sequels. Uh, Julius Caesar um, was followed up by Antony and Cleopatra. We just talked about the Henry Sixes, uh, which run all the way through six, Henry VI one, Henry VI two, Henry VI three, Richard the third, and of course the other tetralogy, Richard the second, Henry the fourth part one, Henry the fourth part two, Henry the fifth. I mean, Shakespeare was all about play sequences. So the idea that he just didn't bother to write a second play, having left this comedy. Um, where he leaves it, that just doesn't sit well with me. I, as I say, I believe there was a second play. I believe it was meant to pick up uh, a year later uh, where Love's Labor is Lost left off, and we simply haven't got it. 
Why do you think this mystery has uh, has caught your attention so much? Uh, you mean just personally why it uh, yeah. excites me so much? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's tantalizing to think what it might have been. Um, it's it's just tantalizing to think, uh, you know, what does that play look like and how would Shakespeare have taken all those uh, ends, uh, all of those obstacles between these couples and what would he have done uh, with them? Um, in my own version of Love's Labors 1, I even make it harder for myself. I create a war uh, very much based on the First World War, um, that uh, throws a wrench in their one-year reunion. It takes four years, um, in my version, for them to come back together. And uh, there's been a lot of death and hardship and suffering in the four years in between. So that makes the reunion much, much more difficult. Um, you know, the fun is, you know, stacking up the obstacles and then seeing if you can get the couples back together again in some way that makes sense. I, I'm just really curious how Shakespeare would have done it. <laughs> and again, uh, is that play published and available for purchase? <laughs> thank you for thank you for the shameless plug. Of, of course, it is. It's it's uh, it loves labors one uh, by me, Scott Kaiser, and it's it's available on Amazon. <laughs> Perfect. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you, Scott. That was all really interesting. Thank you so much for um, entertaining a conversation about that. All all of those textual mysteries that are so it is so fascinating. And and anytime I read. Uh, dive into any of the Arden editions of um, any Shakespeare play, you know, they have the, the, um, there's some history about different editions and different printings of it. And I just always find that so fascinating. Yes. And it also, yes, it is fascinating for those of us who are geeks, but I think for a lot of people, it is wildly intimidating. Um, you, you know, in the Arden, for example, you go to the bottom um, and there will be, you know, the tiny little note on the word uh, that doesn't make any sense. Um, for example, um, in Tempest, the, the phrase most busy least when I do it, you get to that word busy least and you go down to the bottom and it will, it will have, you know, long explanations about what they think it might mean, what the source was, was it corrupted? Was it a compositor's, you know, corruption? Do they run out of letters that day in the printing house? Um, does it appear in the quarto but not in the folio? I mean, the stuff that kind of excites us really will turn the layman's stomach uh, sour. Um, and I think it's it's good to remember that those ardents, which we find so fascinating and, and so uh, satisfying, um, is what makes Shakespeare hard for a lot of people and off-putting and challenging. Um, so, um, you know, it's, I think it's, it's, it's worth, worth noting that, that we love it, but many others really find it quite intimidating. <laughs> That's a good point. Yes. Yes. Not, not for everyone. The Arden editions, not for everyone. But if you are interested in taking a deeper dive into into some of these questions, it can be so interesting because you will see, well, it's printed this way in this quarto, but it's printed this way in this other one. And so here's what we think is maybe the actual word in the manuscript that these two compositors might have, you know, had different interpretations of or whatever. It's, yeah. It, it just and puts... even better, um, have a copy of the actual manuscript. I mean, have a facsimile yeah. of the folio, have a facsimile of the quarto and open that up and actually look at it because, um, 
there are times when actually looking at the way it was printed on the page uh, will sometimes uh, explain things to you that the uh, the strip of terror in the Arden will not. <laughs> um, <laughs> the strip of terror. I love that. Well, I, to me, it 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 reminds it reminds me that these were humans who put these together. You know, there's like what four different compositors who are referenced in in the composing of the texts and like to know that they all had idiosyncrasies about them and and ways in which they all did things a little bit differently and and now here we are 450 years later like having to study what those were in order to you know uncover some of the layers in Shakespeare's text I just think that's the the human touch in that is so interesting to me there, there is a lot of scholarship on this, people who have looked at the compositors and tried to figure out their tendencies. Um, and uh, and so, yes, it, it's really important to know that you had a bunch of guys with uh, little metal cubes and, uh, and trays and were putting things in uh, for printing. Uh, and sometimes they ran out of space. Sometimes they ran out of S's. Sometimes they got tired. Sometimes they showed up at work sick. Sometimes they had fights with their wives. Sometimes, you know, Ted went on a break and, and, and Bill took over. Um, you, you just, you know, you really have no way of knowing when you actually look at the quarto in, in particular, you know, who was at work that day. And there's a lot of scholarship about, you know, each of the individual hands involved in putting that that, that work together. Um, uh, certainly, we know that there were some that were very meticulous and others who were very sloppy. Um, but, uh, um, you know, if that kind of thing interests you, there's a lot of scholarship about that. But yes, your main <laughs> point, that these were these were not computers, um, you know, and a word processor. This was not Microsoft Word. Um, the, these were human beings, you know, regular just, you know, human beings who were filling up trays. Um, and uh, that's uh, has that's why you see enormous variations even from play to play or scene to scene in the way uh things are printed right yeah so fascinating to uh <laughs> i mean i really like history and stuff too so i think that's why it i just like to Im imagine the people behind it but thank you so much scott this was a really interesting conversation for me thanks Alina. <laughs> hopefully it was interesting it was for other people but for me it was great <laughs> Well, I had a good time. <laughs> cool. That's really yeah. what matters. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alita. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. Sound design and composition by Orion Michael Schwamm. This episode was sponsored in part by the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, Whidbey Telecom, and by our listeners. Support us and learn more at islandshakespearefest.org. <laughs>